Welcome to Tom Reads Books, the podcast where, whatever you're doing, I take you on an adventure through some of literature's most loved treasures. If you do enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and also check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash tomreadsbooks, where I release two exclusive episodes every week of a completely different book, full audiobook versions of all books read, and you can help choose future books for me to read. Now, though, I'd like to invite you to settle in. Relax. And let me tell you a story. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 9 He entered, vociferating oaths dreadful to hear, and caught me in the act of stowing his son away in the kitchen cupboard. Harriton was impressed with a wholesome terror of encountering either his wild beast's fondness or his madman's rage, for in one he ran a chance of being squeezed and kissed to death, and in the other of being flung into the fire and dashed against the wall, and the poor thing remained perfectly quiet wherever I chose to put him. There, I've found it out at last, cried Hindley, pulling me back by the skin of the neck like a dog. By heaven and hell, you've sworn between you to murder that child. I know how it is, now, that he is always out of my way. But, with the help of Satan, I shall make you swallow the carving knife, Nelly. You needn't laugh, for I've just cramped Kenneth, head downmost in the black horse marsh, and two is the same as one and I want to kill some of you. I shall make no rest till I do. But I don't like the carving knife, Mr. Hindley, I answered. It has been cutting red herrings. I'd rather be shot, if you please. You'd rather be damned, he said. And so you shall. No law in England can hinder a man from keeping his house decent and mine's abominable. Open your mouth. He held the knife in his hand and pushed its point between my teeth but for my part I was never much afraid of his vagaries. I spat out and affirmed it tasted detestably. I would not take it on any account. Oh, said he, releasing me. I see that hideous little villain is not Harriton. I beg your pardon, Nell. If it be, he deserves flaying alive for not running to welcome me, or for screaming as if I were a goblin. Unnatural cub, come hither. I'll teach thee to impose on a good-hearted, deluded father. No, don't you think a lad would be handsomer cropped? It makes a dog fiercer, and I love something fierce. Get me a scissors, something fierce and trim. Besides, it's infernal affectation, devilish conceit it is, to cherish our ears. We are asses enough without them. Hush, child, hush! Well, then, it is, my darling. Wished thy dry eyes. There's a joy. Kiss me. What? It won't? Kiss me, Harriton. Damn thee, kiss me. By God, as if I would rear such a monster. As sure as I am living, I'll break the brat's neck. Poor Harriton was squealing and kicking in his father's arms with all his might, 
and redoubled his yells when he carried him upstairs and lifted him over the banister. I cried out that he would frighten the child into fits and ran to rescue him. As I reached him, Hindley leant forward on the rails to listen to a noise below, almost forgetting what he had in his hands. Who is that? he asked, hearing someone approaching the stair's foot. I leant forward also, for the purpose of signing to Heathcliff, whose step I recognised not to come further, and to the instant when my eye quitted Harriton, he gave a sudden spring, delivered himself from the careless grasp that held him, and fell. There was scarcely time to experience a thrill of horror before we saw that the little wretch was safe. Heathcliff arrived underneath just at the critical moment. By a natural impulse, he arrested his descent, and setting him on his feet, looked up to discover the author of the accident. A miser who has parted with a lucky lottery ticket for five shillings and finds next day he has lost in the bargain five thousand pounds could not show a blanker countenance than he did on beholding the figure of Mr. Earnshaw above. It expressed, plainer than words could do, the intensest anguish of having made himself the instrument of thwarting his own revenge. Had it been dark, I dare say he would have tried to remedy the mistake by smashing Harriton's skull on the steps. But... We witnessed his salvation, and I was presently below with my precious charge pressed to my heart. Hindley descended more leisurely, sobered and abashed. It is your fault, Ellen, he said. You should have kept him out of sight. You should have taken him from me. Is he injured anywhere? Injured, I cried angrily. If he's not killed, he'll be an idiot. Oh, I wonder his mother does not raise from the grave to see how you use him. You're worse than a heathen, treating your own flesh and blood in that manner. He attempted to touch the child, who, on finding himself with me, sobbed off his terror directly. At the first finger his father laid on him, however, he shrieked again louder than before and struggled as if he would go into convulsions. You shall not meddle with him. I continued. He hates you. They all hate you. That's the truth. A happy family you have, and a pretty state you've come to. I shall come to a prettier yet, Nelly, laughed the misguided man, recovering his hardness. At present, convey yourself in him away, and hark you, Heathcliff. Clear you too, quite from my reach and hearing. I wouldn't murder you tonight unless, perhaps, I set the house on fire. But that's as my fancy goes. While saying this, he took a pint bottle of brandy from the dresser and poured some into a tumbler. Nay, don't, I entreated. Mr. Hindley, do take warning. Have mercy on this unfortunate boy, if you care nothing for yourself. Anyone will do better for him than I shall, he answered. Have mercy on your own soul, I said, endeavouring to snatch the glass from his hand. Not I. On the contrary, I shall have great pleasure in sending it to perdition to punish its maker, exclaimed the blasphemer. Here's to its hearty damnation. He drank the spirits and impatiently bade us go, terminating his command with a sequel of horrid imprecations, too bad to repeat or remember. It's a pity he cannot kill himself with drink, observed Heathcliff muttering an echo of curses back when the door was shut. He's doing his very utmost, but his constitution defies him, 
Mr. Kenneth says he would wager his mare that he'll outlive any man on this side of Gimmerton, and go to the grave a hoary sinner, unless some happy chance out of the common course before him. I went into the kitchen and sat down to lull my little lamb to sleep. Heathcliff, as I thought, walked through to the barn. It turned out afterwards that he only got as far as the other side the settle, when he flung himself on a bench by the wall, removed from the fire, and remained silent. I was rocking Harriton on my knee and humming a song that began, It was far in the night and the bairnies grat, and the mither beneath the mules heard that. When Miss Cathy, who had listened to the hubbub from her room, put her head in and whispered, Are you alone, Nelly? Yes, miss, I replied. She entered and approached the hearth. I, supposing she was going to say something, looked up. The expression of her face seemed disturbed and anxious. Her lips were half asunder as if she meant to speak, and she drew a breath, but it escaped in a sigh instead of a sentence. I resumed my song, not having forgotten her recent behaviour. Where is Heathcliff? She said, interrupting me. About his work in the stable, was my answer. He did not contradict me. Perhaps he had fallen into a doze. There followed another long pause, during which I perceived a drop or two trickle from Catherine's cheek to the flags. Is she sorry for her shameful conduct? I asked myself. That will be a novelty, but she may come to the point as she will. I shan't help her. No, she felt small trouble regarding any subject save her own. Oh dear, she cried at last. I'm very unhappy. A pity, observed I. You're hard to please, so many friends and so few cares, and can't make yourself content. Nelly, will you keep a secret for me? She pursued, kneeling down by me and lifting her winsome eyes to my face with that sort of look which turns off bad temper, even when one has all the right in the world to indulge it. Is it worth keeping? I inquired less sulkily. Yes, and it worries me, and I must let it out. I want to know what I should do. Today, Edgar Linton has asked me to marry him, and I have given him an answer. Now, before I tell you whether it was a consent or denial, you tell me which it ought to have been. Really, Miss Catherine, how can I know? I replied. To be sure, considering the exhibition you performed in his presence this afternoon, I might say it would be wise to refuse him since he asked you after that. He must either be hopelessly stupid or a venturesome fool. If you talk so, I won't tell you any more. She returned peevishly, rising to her feet. I accepted him, Nelly. Be quick and say whether I was wrong. You accepted him? Then what good is it discussing the matter? You have pledged your word and cannot retract it. But say whether I should have done so. Do! She exclaimed in an irritated tone, chafing her hands together and frowning. There are many things to be considered before that question can be answered properly, I said sententiously. First and foremost, do you love Mr. Edgar? Who can help it? Of course I do, she answered. Then I put her through the following catechism. For a girl of twenty-two, it was not injudicious. Why do you love him, Miss Cathy? Nonsense, I do. That is sufficient. By no means, you must say why. Well, because he is handsome and pleasant to be with. Bad, was my commentary. And because he is young and cheerful. Bad still. And because he loves me, 
indifferent, coming there, and he will be rich, and I shall like to be the greatest woman of the neighborhood, and I shall be proud of having such a husband. Worst of all, and now say how you love him. As everybody loves, you're silly, Nelly. Not at all, answer. I love the ground under his feet, and the air above his head, and everything he touches, and every word he says. I love all his looks, all his actions, and him entirely and altogether. There, now. And why? Nay, you are making a jest of it. It is exceedingly ill-natured. It's no jest to me, said the young lady, scowling and turning her face to the fire. I am very far from jesting, Miss Catherine, I replied. You love Mr. Edgar because he is handsome and young and cheerful and rich and loves you. The last, however, goes for nothing. You would love him without that, probably, and with it, you wouldn't unless he possessed the four former attractions. No, to be sure not. I should only pity him, hate him, perhaps, if he were ugly and a clown. But there are several other handsome, rich young men in the world, handsomer, possibly, and richer than he is. What should hinder you from loving them? If there be any, they are out of my way. I have seen none like Edgar. You may see some, and he won't always be handsome and young, and may not always be rich. He is now, and I have only to do with the present. I wish you would speak rationally. Well, that settles it. If you have only to do with the present, marry Mr. Linton. I don't want your permission for that. I shall marry him, and yet you have not told me whether I'm right. Perfectly right if people be right to marry only for the present. Your brother will be pleased. The old lady and gentleman will not object, I think. You will escape from a disorderly, comfortless home into a wealthy, respectable one. And you love Edgar, and Edgar loves you. All seems smooth and easy. What is the obstacle? Here and here, replied Catherine, striking one hand on her forehead and the other on her breast. In whichever place the soul lives, in my soul and in my heart, I am convinced I am wrong. That's very strange. I cannot make it out. It's my secret. But if you will not mock me, I'll explain it. I can't do it distinctly, but I'll give you a feeling of how I feel. She seated herself by me again. Her countenance grew sadder and graver, and her clasped hands trembled. Nelly, do you never dream queer dreams? She asked suddenly, after some minutes' reflection. Yes, now and then, I answered, and so do I. I have dreamt in my life dreams that have stayed with me ever after and changed my ideas. They've gone through and through me like wine through water and altered the colour of my mind. And this is one. I'm going to tell it, but take care not to smile at any part of it. Oh, don't, Miss Catherine, I cried. We're dismal enough without conjuring up ghosts and visions to perplex us. Come, come, be merry and like yourself. Look at little Harriton. He's dreaming nothing dreary. How sweetly he smiles in his sleep. Yes, and how sweetly his father curses in his solitude. You remember him, I dare say, when he was just another as that chubby thing, nearly as young and innocent. However, Nelly, I shall oblige you to listen. It's not long. I have no power to be merry tonight. I won't hear it. I won't hear it, I repeated hastily. I was superstitious about dreams then, and am still, and Catherine had an unusual gloom in her aspect that made me dread something from which I might shape a prophecy and foresee a fearful catastrophe. She was vexed, but she did not proceed, apparently taking up another subject. She recommenced in a short time. If I were in heaven, Nelly, I should be extremely miserable. 
because you are not fit to go there, I answered. All sinners will be miserable in heaven. But it is not for that. I dreamt once that I was there. I tell you, I won't hearken to your dreams, Miss Catherine. I'll go to bed, I interrupted again. She laughed and held me down, for I made a motion to leave my chair. This is nothing, cried she. I was only going to say that heaven did not seem to be my home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth, and the angels were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath on the top of Withering Heights, where I woke, sobbing for joy. That will do to explain my secret as well as the other. I have no more business to marry Edgar Linton than I have to be in heaven, and if the wicked man in there had not brought Heathcliff so low, I shouldn't have thought of it. It would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now, so he shall never know how I love him, and that, not because he is handsome, Nelly, but because he is more myself than I am, whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same, and Linton's is as different as moonbeam from lightning or frost from fire. Ere this speech ended, I became sensible of Heathcliff's presence. Having noticed a slight movement, I turned my head and saw him rising from the bench and steal out noiselessly. He had listened till he heard Catherine say it would degrade her to marry him, and then he stayed to hear no farther. My companion sitting on the ground was prevented by the back of the settle from remarking his presence or departure, but I started and bade her hush. Why? she asked, gazing nervously round. Joseph is here, I answered, catching opportunely the roll of his cartwheels up the road, and Heathcliff will come in with him. I'm not sure whether he were not at the door this moment. Oh, he couldn't ever hear me at the door, said she. Give me Harriton while you get the supper, and when it is ready, ask me to sup with you. I want to cheat my uncomfortable conscience and be convinced that Heathcliff has no notion of these things. He has not, has he? He does not know what being in love is. I see no reason why he should not know, as well as you, I returned, and if you are his choice, he'll be the most unfortunate creature that ever was born. As soon as you become Mrs. Linton, he loses friend and love and all. Have you considered how you'll bear the separation, and how he'll bear to be quite deserted in the world, because, Miss Catherine, he quite deserted, we separated, she exclaimed with an accent of indignation. Who is to separate us, pray? They'll meet the fate of Milo, not as long as I live, Ellen, for no mortal creature. Every Linton on the face of the earth might melt into nothing before I could consent to forsake Heathcliff. Oh, that's not what I intend, that's not what I mean. I shouldn't be Mrs. Linton were such a price demanded. He'll be as much to me as he's been all his lifetime. Edgar must shake off his antipathy and tolerate him at least. He will when he learns my true feelings towards him. Nelly, I see now you think me a selfish wretch. But did it never strike you that if Heathcliff and I married, we should be beggars? Whereas if I marry Linton, I can aid Heathcliff to rise and place him out of my brother's power. With your husband's money, Miss Catherine, I asked. You'll find him not so pliable as you calculate upon, and though I'm hardly a judge, I think that's the worst motive you've given yet for being the wife of young Linton. It is not, retorted she. It is the best. The others were the sanctification of my whims, and for Edgar's sake, too, to satisfy him. This is for the sake of one who comprehends in his person my feelings to Edgar and myself. I cannot express it. But surely you and everybody have a notion that there is, or should be, an existence of yours beyond you. 
What were the use of my creation if I were entirely contained here? My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning my great thought in living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be, and if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. I should not seem a part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I am well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff remains the eternal rocks beneath, a source little of visible delight, but necessary. Nelly, I am Heathcliff. He is always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of any separation again. It is impracticable, and... She paused and hid her face in the folds of my gown, but I jerked it forcibly away. I was out of patience with her folly. If I can make any sense of your nonsense, miss, I said, it only goes to convince me that you are ignorant of the duties you undertake in marrying, or else that you are a wicked, unprincipled girl. But trouble me with no more secrets. I shall not promise to keep them. You'll keep that? She asked eagerly. No, I'll not promise, I repeated. She was about to insist when the entrance of Joseph finished our conversation, and Catherine removed her seat to a corner and nursed Harriton while I made the supper. After it was cooked, my fellow servant and I began to quarrel who should carry some to Mr. Hinley, and we didn't settle it till all was nearly cold. Then we came to the agreement that we would let him ask, if he wanted any, for we feared particularly to go into his presence when he had been some time alone. And as that nobody, coming through the field by now, what was he up to, grey idle sight? demanded the old man, looking round for Heathcliff. I'll call him, I replied. He's in the barn, I've no doubt. I went and called, but got no answer. On returning, I whispered to Catherine that he had heard a good part of what she said. I was sure, and told how I saw him quit the kitchen just as she complained of her brother's conduct regarding him. She jumped up in a fright, flung Harriton onto the settle, and ran to seek for her friend herself, not taking leisure to consider why she was so flurried, or how her talk would have affected him. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Tom Reads Books podcast. If you'd like to support the show, leaving a rating and a short review on whatever podcast platform you're using really goes a long way to help us reach new listeners. Other than that, I hope you have a wonderful day, and I look forward to reading to you again very soon.